Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Let's have all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Fairmount Plus. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to the Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth this week. And you know what? Doing this Harry Potter movie franchise extravaganza with each week that we do another installment of Harry Potter, Laurel and I are one week closer to meeting our unborn child. So this has a lot of special significance. We are now deep into it. We are on Order of the Phoenix, last week Goblet of Fire. The fifth installment, we're at the back half of this, and we're in the last few weeks of Laurel's pregnancy, and I really just couldn't be happier and more excited to go on this journey with you, the Dear Midnight Myth listeners. We're also counting down to the end of what has probably been the most disruptive year of most of our lives 2020, the end is in sight. And while the ball drop on New Year's Eve is not going to change the circumstances that created 2020, it does feel exciting that we're going to get a little bit of a fresh start here around the corner. So it's kind of a fun lead up to the holidays and to the end of this kind of dumpster fire of a year. Although, of course, you, Derek, and I have quite a bit of silver lining to our dumpster fire of a 2020. Indeed. And, you know, the pandemic COVID-19 is raging through America. And folks, if you can, stay home. If you gotta go somewhere, wear a mask for, for heaven's sake. If you, if it's a choice between having a nice private uh, celebration by yourself or traveling and seeing friends and family, and I know it's really painful, trust us, we understand. We're about to introduce a new family member and many loved ones won't be able to be there because of this pandemic. It's a major disappointment, but please stay home, wear a mask. We'll all get through it if we pull together. Yep. And there's an end in sight. There is absolutely an end in sight. So, well, this wasn't supposed to be about the pandemic, (laughs) but here we are. Um, So we're now on to the order of the Phoenix. It's the fifth installment here. And we have our fourth and final director, right? We've had four directors. Yeah, this is our final director change. This director, um, David Yates, will helm the Harry Potter ship until the conclusion of the franchise. And through to the Fantastic Beasts franchise. The what? The uh, Yeah, no, I don't exist. like to think about it either. I've never heard of that. <laughs> that's, not a, that's not a real thing. That's, that's fair. That's totally imaginary. Yeah. Anyway, we're really excited to talk about it. Before we get too heavy into it, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, so if you want to get in touch with us, uh, please hit us up on social media. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also find us on our website, midnightmyth.com, where you can drop us a line or you can check out blogs, extra content, links to our Patreon page and to our merch store if you'd like to support us leading into the holidays. 
Uh, you should know if you're a Patreon supporter or you're thinking about becoming a Patreon supporter that our uh, Patreon pledges for this month and next month have been donated to the Transgender Law Center supporting uh, the Trans Agenda for Liberation. So if you are already supporting us on Patreon, thank you so much. That's where your dollars are going. Uh, and we really appreciate everybody for being behind us on that. And you said this month and next month. This is December. Are we doing it in January as well? Well, oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, for the duration of the Harry Potter series, I've actually already set aside the money and donated it to the trans, uh, Transgender Law Center as part of Giving Tuesday. So I just donated the equivalent. But if you sign up and you end up pledging Patreon uh, funds to us this month, I will just have to up my donation. So please uh, think about that or donate to the Transgender Law Center yourself. And to be clear, we are doing this because J.K. Rowling is a transphobe and we totally 100% disagree with that. We support and believe in universal human rights, which includes our trans friends and family out there. Trans rights are human rights. Yep, we love you. Anyway, on with the midnight myth. Shall we start with our briefest of brief recaps? Yes, please. I'm going to attempt to recap this very plot-heavy movie. Harry Potter starts isolated and alone from the wizarding community, living with his muggle family, the Dursleys. And we start with Harry and his cousin being attacked by two Dementors from Azkaban prison. The Dementors you'll remember from the third installment are the ghastly wraiths who suck the souls out of their victims and guard the prisoners in Azkaban. Harry counters this by using the Patronus charm, only to find out that he's going to be expelled from Hogwarts for using the Patronus charm out of school and in front of a muggle. This prompts Dumbledore to arrange a hearing with the Minister of Magic so that Harry can plead his case that using the Patronus charm was not illegal because his life was in immediate danger. This happens as Harry goes to 12 Grimmauld Place, the home of his godfather, Sirius Black, which is now the headquarters of the Order of Phoenix. It is there that Harry learns that Fudge, the Minister of Magic, is denying Harry and Dumbledore's claims that Lord Voldemort has returned and killed Cedric Diggory and is using all of his levers of power to discredit Harry and Dumbledore, including smearing them in the Daily Prophet, the magazine of the Wizarding World. Harry goes to his hearing and because of Dumbledore's interference, he ends up not expelled and he goes to Hogwarts. At Hogwarts, he learns that the Minister of Magic, Cornelius Fudge, has installed the new defense against the dark arts teacher, the pink-wearing, sometimes called toad-face teacher named Dolores Umbridge. Dolores quickly sets about doing a series of magical reforms, including not teaching magic, and butts up against all of the other professors and suspects that Dumbledore may be forming an army to overthrow Cornelius Fudge. Using her position in the ministry, she gets her named, herself named the High Inquisitor of Hogwarts and goes on a series of draconian reforms from sacking Sybil Trelawney, from instituting um, torture programs and regimes of students who are misbehaving, banning Quidditch, and the like. This prompts Harry, Hermione, and Ron to wonder if no one's going to teach these students how to defend themselves against Lord Voldemort, what are they going to do? Hermione suggests that Harry ends up teaching the other students what he knows about defensive magic and defeating the dark arts. Now, Harry is, finds himself very unpopular at school because of all of the Minister of Magic smearing of him. Nevertheless, he agrees to go forward with this, and his crush Cho Chang, Cedric's ex-girlfriend, ends up joining. Then Neville finds something called the Room of Requirement, a magical room which will give the people who need it whatever they're looking for, and thus Dumbledore's army is founded. Harry, Ron, and Hermione start teaching all the Hogwarts students in secret all the defensive spells. It doesn't take long for Dolores Umbridge to uncover this, and seeing that they have called this secret organization Dumbledore's army, she goes with Aurors, magical dark wizard catchers, and the Minister of Magic, confronts Dumbledore and accuses him of a coup against the Ministry of Magic. Dumbledore confesses that he does, even though we, the audience, know he had nothing to do with it, and disappears with his phoenix fox. 
Umbridge is now named the new headmistress of Hogwarts and becomes the authoritarian ruler of the school and rules it with an iron fist. Harry then has these visions, learning that he and Voldemort's minds are connected and starts taking lessons on how to block that connection with Severus Snape. These lessons do not go well, and Harry is not good at blocking Voldemort's connection. Harry has two visions, one of which Ron's father, Arthur Weasley, is being attacked by the snake Nagini, which turns out to be true, and the second, that Sirius Black is being captured and is being tortured in the Minister of Magic. Way back in the beginning of this movie, Sirius Black mentioned to Harry that there was a weapon that Dumbledore was looking for in the Department of Mysteries. Harry, seeing his godfather being tortured, assembles himself, Ron, Hermione, Luna Lovegood, Jeannie, Jeannie Weasley, and Neville, and they escape to the Minister of Magic after Dolores Umbridge gets carried off by centaurs to uh, see if they can save Sirius Black. My God, so much happens in this movie. Long story short, it was a trap by Voldemort. Death Eaters come. The weapon is a prophecy that only Harry hears. He smashes and destroys it. And in the fray, the escaped convict, Bellastric Lestrange, cousin of Sirius Black, curses with the killing curse on Sirius, and he dies. The, the movie culminates with Dumbledore and Voldemort in an epic and amazing duel, wizard duel in the Minister of Magic, and Dumbledore leaves. But first, Fudge, the Minister of Magic, sees that Dumbledore is back. Voldemort. I'm sorry, sees that Voldemort is back. Thank you. And the movie ends. Whew, do you need a glass of water? There's a lot of plot. I think I left out so many things. Oh, Harry gets his first kiss. Yep, and uh, Hagrid's half-brother Grop the giant is living in the Forbidden Forest. Uh, yeah, no, there is so much that happens in this movie. It's one of the plot heaviest, but also when you look at the difference between this and the book, like so much plot was cut too. Like we don't have the Daily Prophet slash Quibbler uh, we don't have the Rita Skeeter storyline. We don't have the Cho and Harry storyline. There's a whole bunch that gets uh, streamlined, and still we have tons and tons and tons that happens. Uh, so it, well done with the recap. That was a monumental effort there. Uh, and there's so much to discuss that there's no way we're going to get to every aspect of it tonight. But I think uh, we have talked about some of the more uh, coherent themes that run through the entire story. Yeah, we're not going to be super specific thematically. We will link what we have to certain textual references and evidence, but we want to draw some really big conclusions on this one and ask ourselves fundamentally, really, what is Order of the Phoenix all about? But let's not put the cart in front of the horse. Do you think this movie holds up? Uh, good question. Uh, yes, I think it's a good movie. Um, for me personally, this ranks lower on the totem pole of Harry Potter movies. Uh, I do think that David Yates is a strong choice and becomes a very strong director for the series is laying out the template for what the Harry Potter movies are going to look like going forward. And for the most part does that pretty successfully. It's visually beautiful. This is one of the more stunning visual installments. Um, but my problems with it mostly come from the writing Notably, this is the only installment of the Harry Potter series that's not scripted by Steve Clovis, who wrote all the other ones. This one's written by a screenwriter named Michael Goldenberg. And for me, the problem with it is that if we look at it compared to the book, Order of the Phoenix, uh, the novel, is, I think, the deepest and most introspective character study we've had just so far in the series. It is a deep, deep exploration of Harry, of his struggle, of his trauma, um, and so much of it is spent inside his head dealing with the darkness that he's confronting. And I don't think that the movie is super interested in dealing with the ugliness of that. I think it relies really heavily on montage and on kind of like 101 plot delivery vehicles. And for me, that's where it falls short of the book. Can I can I pry you a little bit on that? Yeah, so when yeah. you say 101 um, plot development, I think is what you said. What what exactly do you mean by that? Sort of screenwriting 101. So uh, in order to deliver as much plot as possible in a really efficient way, 
It has a bunch of really lengthy montages and it does them again and again just to say, okay, let's just rattle through all this instead of uh, having long scenes where characters uh, accomplish objectives, we'll have a bunch of really short sequences that are strung together. It also delivers a ton of exposition via newspaper headlines, which it does in an interesting visual way, but for me just feels a little bit cheap. And I, I, I would have loved to see this movie really get its hands dirty with the kind of painful character stuff that particularly Harry is working through. Uh, and I think that it just never lets itself have that time to breathe. I think that's a fair assessment. You know, so much does happen in this movie. It's from a plot perspective. You have to establish Umbridge, create her as the villain, have her create the inquisitorial, um, be named the inquisitor, then create the inquisitorial decrees, then establish herself to supplant um, Dumbledore. Meanwhile, have Harry become a teacher himself, find the room of requirement and start training everyone and a montaging both of those things sort of happening overlapping is very efficient. Um, you know, I wonder if instead of doing it that way, if they could have really like honed in on one or two specific instances, yeah. such as really show Dumber Umbridge going up against Trelawney or Snape or McGonagall or McGonagall, yeah. like all, all these professors that she rubs the wrong way and really sit there and like really show how, you know, sincerely vicious Umbridge is. But I say that recognizing that when we see Harry and his first detention with her, and when we see that torture scene and we see that exercise of power, it's a moment where you're like, Oh, she's that evil. Yeah. You're like, Oh, she's not just a little annoying and a little prudish and maybe a little too into the ministry she's delighting in the pain of a child because she thinks the child agrees with her that he deserves it. And she like this, the look of satisfaction when Harry realizes that he is torturing himself. And this is the scene where he is told to draw lines with the magic quill and every word he writes then etches into her. And then we see later on where there's a group of, of the Dumbledore's army all in detention and her just sipping tea as they torture themselves. And then we get one more time where we see a younger, you know, Gryffindor student with Fred and Weasley just in tears about how much it hurts and them saying, don't worry, it won't last forever. So I do think you get to see that fleshed out a bit. And I, you know, so I'm, I'm with you with the montages that maybe it goes a little too quick but I just don't know, and that's also because I'm not a screenwriter, any better way to do that. Yeah, and you know, my criticisms don't, don't take away at all from some of the genius elements of this movie. Like, we could talk about the genius casting and performance of Imelda Staunton as Dolores Umbridge. She is incredible. The sinister quality with the sickly sweetness is like, it's just ripped off the pages of the books, but it has so much more uh, depth and terror to it. She is a truly insidious villain and one of the more uh, terrifying villains of the series alongside Lord Voldemort himself. So that is genius. Again, I said it was visually stunning and there are some really incredible directori directorial choices. The score is beautiful. The uh, Just the scene where they're riding brooms over the Thames uh, throughout London is so exhilarating, and I think that it it really gets into why um, why it's fun to see Harry Potter on the big screen rather than just reading it on the pages. It's like why are we making these into movies at all? Because they are these thrilling and beautiful rides. Uh, so I think it has some really really powerful strengths. It's just for me, I I want it to get as I want it to get as ugly as the novel does, and I don't think it ever does. That's fair. I think David Yates has built off of what the previous directors have done. And he has a combination of whimsy and gray. When I mean gray, I mean both morally gray. I mean, the look of gray gray is a big color in this movie. Yeah. Gray and like slate blue. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think, but then there's also still whimsy. Like you mentioned them riding their, um, you know, their broomsticks uh, right by the tower of London. When Harry first sees Grimort place, and he sees that it expands and the muggles have no idea that's happening. 
So there's still some moments of really good magical whimsy. There's great touching moments when the Room of Requirement produces mistletoe for him and Cho. There's this great moment where Ron, Hermione, and Harry are just sitting around the fire laughing, which we learned in preparation for this podcast was a cut scene that the director chose to put in there. Yeah, it's a genuine laugh on They're Hermione's all- part. They're really, truly laughing at, at the situation and, and the chemistry between them is so palpable. And then you have institutionalized torture regimes by tyrannical you know, teachers who end up creating a fascistic regime in Hogwarts that will end up mirroring where we go with Voldemort. So there's there's this um, there's this balance between the morally gray, sometimes outright dark, versus the whimsy that I think David Yates does really well and will continue to do well throughout the series. I think there's a cinematic style now. The camera, like Alfonso Cuaron, moves. He uses a lot of going in and out of glass. Yeah, he totally uses the impossible camera trick with the glass. He does that a bunch of times as a way that we're like peering in and out. The camera isn't always just focused on the scene or the characters, but moves around. And so I think there is now a cinematic language of Harry Potter that has defined the series and will continue to define the series. And largely speaking, I think it is successful. I'm willing to say here on The Midnight Myth, this movie holds up. All right. We also get Luna Lovegood. Like, this is our introduction to Luna Lovegood, and my heart melts every time Ivana Lynch comes on screen. Uh, Just a character that means a lot to me, and I think probably means a lot to a lot of people reading or seeing her on screen. Uh, Just an excellent, uh, excellent, quirky, eccentric little Ravenclaw who brings some lightness and brings a, a different kind of dimension to the younger characters. In a movie in which power is demanding conformity, is demanding blind allegiance to the state and saying, you must do as we ask, you must believe us as the source of knowledge. And we see in Umbridge how truly terrible that ideology can go. It makes sense that we have the ultimate nonconformist ally of Harry in Luna Lovegood. Someone who's not mad when fellow students steal their shoes. Someone who is capable of giving Harry great advice. Someone who has dealt with similar traumas as Harry and arguably is doing a better job with it, showing Harry that he can and will heal. When she says, you know, I feel really sad about it sometimes, but at least I have my dad. She's teaching Harry coping skills that no other character in this either can or is capable of doing. And Luna representing the individual creative spark, the idea that we can overcome this, and the idea of like, I'm not going to be mad at everyone else. I'm going to sit here and do what I have to do to get through this with grace and humility and kindness. And Harry absolutely learns so much. Harry doesn't truly have an adult mentor in this. Sirius obviously gets a few moments to shine when he tells Harry, when Harry confesses that he feels he may be becoming like Voldemort. And this is why their connection is there. And Sirius reminds him that you're a good person that bad things have happened to, it, which is different from being a bad person. And he really needed to hear that in that moment. But like, barring that, the best mentor to Harry is honestly Luna. I am glad that you brought that up. Uh, and I think that the camaraderie that grows between the young characters, not just the, you know, the central three pillars of Harry, Ron and Hermione, but the core members of Dumbledore's army is a really strong element of this installment that is a contrast to the earlier films where Harry usually forms a pretty strong relationship with a mentor figure and relies on that character throughout the story. Uh, here, he's starting to form his own band, and he's becoming that mentor as well. Uh, I also think the way that Luna functions as this sort of, uh, this person, uh, this companion on the path of overcoming your trauma, uh, so does Neville. Even though we have known Neville since the Hogwarts Express, we've known Neville since day one at Hogwarts, uh, Harry has not truly understood the motivations behind Neville. He's gotten some hints that there is something going on in Neville's past, but he does not know the tragedy of Neville's parents, and he learns that in this installment, 
that Neville's parents were also a part of the Order of the Phoenix alongside Harry's parents and fought alongside Dumbledore and were tortured into insanity by Bellatrix Lestrange. So there is this uh, strong camaraderie that is built between Harry and his existing friend group, but also this much stronger uh, connection between uh, him and Neville and him and Luna as people who have gone through the same sort of trauma that allows them to see Thestrals, allows them to uh, tap into something that uh, they need each other to come through. Yeah, the Thestral is such an amazing symbol, and I'm glad that you brought that up. When you think of what a Thestral represents... These are gentle and kind creatures. They're fully domesticated. However, because of their hideous looks, they are invisible to the world. You have to have experienced and witnessed and seen true horrors in order to see the Thestral. And it's remarkable that it is Harry and Luna are the only two of the core group that can do that. And it is Harry's walk to see the Thestrals where he meets Luna, where we start to see a turning point. And Harry then starts to trust his friends. They both represent death, but more importantly, they represent coping with and getting over death. They are both monstrous and kind, just like being alive in the real world is. They are hideous but gentle. There's more than what you can see. And if you can see them at all, it represents the hole that you have in your own heart. However, you can overcome that own hole. And it starts with Harry opening up to his friends. It starts with finally talking to them. It starts with doing something about Umbridge and forming Dumbledore's army. It then starts with going to the Ministry of Magic, using the spells that Harry has taught them. This movie shows each and every one of Dumbledore's army using a particular spell Harry taught them. He actually teaches them to fight Death Eaters and they do successfully fight Death Eaters. And if nothing else, the Order of the Phoenix, though it is morally ambiguous, it is dark, it is a fundamentally optimistic message that you can do something. You are not powerless, and when you do something, it can succeed. Even if it's just stopping Voldemort this one day, that's still one day that Voldemort doesn't have power. Amazing. You know, I just want to stay on this train of thought for one second before we get into the real meat and potatoes of our analysis here. Uh, and that's, I just want to go back to the Thestrals for one moment. What do we see Luna do with the Thestrals? She feeds them. She comforts them. She plays with them. As a symbol of, of the trauma that she experienced, you would think that they would cause a fear response in her. And maybe they did the first time she saw them, the way that they cause a really uneasy response in Harry. But now she has found a comfort with them where she can pull you know, an apple or a piece of meat from her bag and share it with this creature that represents the pain that she has been living with. And I think that's a kind of beautiful visual way of communicating the fact that, yes, she's going to continue to live with this. It's never going to be away. The grief of losing her mother is never going to be gone. But she has found a harmonious relationship with that grief where she can integrate that into her identity and move on and nurture it like it needs to be nurtured, continue to pay attention to it rather than do what Harry has been encouraged to do by the wizarding world with his pain, which is bottle it up. Or, you know, there's just no outlet, there's no support system for Harry to uh, really experience and really uh, express uh, the, the pain that he's been feeling after the death of Cedric, after the return of Voldemort, and especially how those compound the trauma of losing his parents. There's no support system for this. So seeing this example of Luna... I think is a really strong thing for him to see. Totally, totally, 100% agree. Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's uh, pivot a little bit, if you will. Let's segue here. Yeah. One of the things that I see in Order of the Phoenix is that it is fundamentally about power. It's about who holds power and what do they do with that power. And I think this is most clearly articulated through Umbridge, who comes to do the, the Defense Against the Dark Arts, and starts using that position with authority and then uses that to expand her role until she becomes the headmistress. And I really wanted to dig into what type of power 
does Umbridge have? Where does it come from? What system of power is she operating in? And I was lucky enough that I got some time with a college professor of political science who happens to also be a good friend of mine, Professor uh, Flavio Hickel at the Washington College in Maryland. So I spent about an hour kind of chatting with um, Flavio about these different forms of power and what political science says about power and wanted to kind of share some of this. And I just want to thank again for uh, Professor Hickel for taking time out of his very busy life to do this. And so Professor Hickel's not a Harry Potter fan, so I had to explain a lot. But, you know, in many ways, that was beneficial to our conversation because he was just giving me the raw political science without any Harry Potter context. One of the things that I learned is that we often colloquially interchange the terms authoritarianism, totalitarianism, and fascism. Political scientists actually separate them, though they can often overlap. You can have a fascistic, authoritarian, and totalitarian society, but you could also have an authoritarian society that's fascistic but not totalitarian. So what's the difference between these terms in, in how political scientists use them? Essentially, when a political scientist uses fascism, they mean a, a belief in ideology in which people worship the state. The state is the most important thing Anything that you do in defense of the state and for the state is justified. This is often manifested in racist ways that the state is, for example, white, German, and non-Jewish, for example. Recognize that from any fascist societies. But ultimately, you put the state at the number one. Most, fa most people think of fascism as a system of government that has one-man rule. But in theory, you could have an oligarchic fascist society. You can have an aristocratic. Very hard to have a democratic, a democratic fascistic yeah. society. But it is theoretically possible, but a lot harder to believe. Then there's totalitarianism. Now, totalitarianism is when the state owns everything. Modern-day China, for example, is a totalitarian state in which all the, the per, all the levers of the, everything, 100%, I'm like stumbling over my words, is owned by the state. Every newspaper sold, every television that you purchase, every institution that you participate in has some form of state ownership or state control. So it probably goes hand in hand with an economic system, right? It does, but it's not necessarily so. Not necessarily, so. yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it can. So in the case of China... They practice orthodox Marxism is their economic system and it is totalitarian. That being said, there are aspects of totalitarianism. They have opened up some markets, so it's not 100% totalitarianism. Last is authoritarianism, which is one rule. One person rules. Often this person's going to be a man. And authoritarianism isn't always necessarily a negative. For example, there have been many authoritarian monarchies that have done great things for the world. The English monarchy being one of them at one point operated as an authoritarian. One can be an authoritarian, but not totalitarian. For example, if you are Putin in Russia, you may allow churches to operate independently of state control. So you are an authoritarian, but you don't control one of the estates of society, which is the clergy, which operates somewhat independently from the state. And you may also not be fascist. All of this is to say, what do we really see most articulated through Umbridge? And I would argue fascism first and foremost. I would too. When you said that it's all about being in service of the state and kind of bending your ideology to serve the state, even if that includes incorporating elements of racism and xenophobia, that really pinged uh, Umbridge and the, the, the party line of the ministry for me. And we see um, Fudge, who is not an authoritarian, not at all, acting fascistically, you know, in favor of making sure that everybody knows the state is number one. You look out for the state. Um, we see this clearly articulated when Umbridge has Harry, Ron, and Hermione, and without the Veritas serum, decides she will torture um, Harry to get the information about Dumbledore's army. And as she does so, she turns down Cornelius's Fudge's picture, knowing that she's breaking one of Fudge's laws, but that's okay if you do it in service of the state and for Fudge. So what is fascism? How does um, Umbridge utilize it? And what can we learn from the type of fascism that we see here? 
Um, just a fun thing about fascism because everything always comes back to Rome. The term fascism also comes back to ancient Rome. The fascis is a, um, it is a symbol of power and imperial magistry. It is a bunch of sticks tied together by a guild called the lictors with an X on it. And if you were a magistrate, the amount of power that you had was directly related to the amount of lictors you had carrying fascists. So if you had 12 people following you and each one had a fasc, you were more, um, you had a higher rank than someone that had six. You're looking at me. Did I explain that in a way that's totally confusing? Yeah. So the, so the, the fasc is a weapon that they carry or it's, uh, it's a more symbol. a symbol. Okay. It's a symbol. Yeah. That's so no, but it can absolutely be used as a weapon. So you, there have been instances in Rome, in particular in the Republic, where the fascists were used as weapons and used to club people and used to kill people. But it's more about the symbol of the magistrate. So the highest office in Rome, the one would have the most fascists, who would have 24 lictors carrying 24 fascists, was the office of dictator. So if you get the term dictator, you had 24 fascists with you and you would walk around um, and that's how people would recognize you as the dictator. That's fascinating. The term dictator comes back from ancient Rome as well and wasn't necessarily a bad thing because a dictator would be appointed by the Senate in a time of crisis when the bureaucracy and the legality needed to be suspended so Rome could survive. Um, Famously, I can name one right off the top of my head, Quintus Fabius Maximus was appointed dictator when Hannibal eliminated a army during the Second Punic Wars and was about to march on Rome. They're like, okay, we just need one person to get an army mustered really quickly to stop Hannibal from destroying the entire city. Well, and then Julius Caesar was named dictator for life, wasn't he? Julius Caesar was the first Roman to be named dictator for life. Dictator was usually just a momentary yeah. office you would hold until the such time as the crisis would pass and then the Republic would be reinstated. And it was Caesar who became dictator for life, which is one of the few uh, straws that broke the camel's back on his enemies who then assassinated him in a failed attempt to restore the Republic. I'm something, glad we don't have that system anymore. <laughs> yeah, something that would never happen again. Yeah. Um, yeah, we definitely don't have a system where a dictator can be appointed because of ancient Rome and our founding fathers knew the Roman history. Otherwise, we might have made that same mistake. Fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. That, I mean, anytime I can connect something to Rome, I'm going to do it. Absolutely. And much of our current, especially the terms and lingos of politics, do have their roots back into the ancient world. But really, fascism, as we know it, is an early 20th century invention by someone by the name of Mussolini, who started his career as a communist and a journalist in Italy. And then ultimately, after World War I, renounced the Communist Party and formed the Fascist Party that would then come to define what fascism means. And this was also what happened in Germany under the Third Reich and the rise of Adolf Hitler. And the World War II commenced. We all know that history as well. Now, political scientists argue about pretty much everything. But one thing they do agree upon is that political attitudes and beliefs are almost always established when people are young and once established it is very difficult for people to change or develop new attitudes if you establish liberal beliefs or conservative beliefs in your youth you are very unlikely to ever change them of the influences that you have over your political attitudes the most primary place where you first learn them is through your parents the second through your school the very appointing of Dolores Umbridge to the Defense Against the Dark Arts, while on one hand is to put a check on Dumbledore's authority, which is to say to put the state over Dumbledore because he is acting too individualistically, not in the nature of a fascistic state, but it's also to shape and form the attitudes of the wizarding young. This is something that fascistic societies in our own history have done most notoriously, in the Hitler Youth Group, which was designed to brainwash boys into being self-sacrificing fascist, racist German soldiers. And what do we see 
with the Inquisitor as her powers expand and she realizes that there are splinter groups, she ends up forming her own Inquisitorial squad whose job it is to find, inform, and punish the enemies of the state. Something that we see mirrored in our own history, in particular with the formation of all of the different Nazi groups, not to mention the SS, whose job it was to spy on um, their own citizens and to hunt and to tear them down. Now, often the worship of the state and fascism is fundamentally racist in some way or some capacity. In order for you to say, it is us who you should give authority to, you have to have another to exploit. In Nazi Germany, it was the Jewish population, but there were other populations as well, people that were communist, people that were homosexuals, and also people who were gypsies. Who does Dolores Umbridge fire first? Well, she fires Sybil Trelawney, who does somewhat resemble a stereotypical European gypsy in the beads, the idea of fortune-telling, something that has been propagated by the European gypsy community, and we also see her disparage the centaurs as non-human and beastly. In the book, we get a little more of how deeply um, racist Umbridge is against half-human, non-magical. She calls Lupin a half-breed at one point. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We get some of that in the movie. We don't get a ton, which I think goes to your point of it doesn't allow it to get messy enough. I'd like to have seen Umbridge's full racism on screen. But that being said, it is still there in the movie and it's still very prevalent. And then in the very end, we get her to admit that all she loves is the state. She absolutely doesn't even like children. She hates children. And just to quickly sum up, starting from the position of a fascistic philosophy, Umbridge installs herself as an inquisitor and then to advance her fascist regime, she ends up becoming the authoritarian she ends up becoming the one-woman dictator of Hogwarts. And all of this is to mirror the trials and tribulations to come. It's going to be no surprise that when the ministry actually falls, e.g. when the Republic falls, that Dolores Umbridge is going to graduate from torturing and children to torturing muggle-borns and half-bloods, which we'll see in future installments. Now, what can we glean from this? One of the questions that I had for Flavio is, you know, how do fair and free societies become these sort of fascistic and authoritarian states? And there is this interesting political philosopher called Adorno. He came from the Frankfurt School of Germany and did a research project wanting to realize how did regular people become Nazis? And before I explain what uh, Adorno thought, I will add that this is debated whether this is or is not true. It fell out of favor. However, it's recently going back into favor. And the idea is that there is an enlightened authoritarian trait, that this authoritarian trait is established in young people and that it says the state is the best thing out there, fierce patriotism and obedience. It encourages conformity it encourages cruelty towards others, and it exists for an authoritarian to then activate. And then once activated, people are willing to then go along with authoritarianism. We do see some interesting evidence of this in Order of the Phoenix in the way that Umbridge activates the inquisitorial, um, her inquisitorial squad. She finds people more likely to believe in the state, to be conformist, and to want to punish the enemies of the state and activates them into her own squad. Now, one of the reasons that this has fallen out of favor is because some people have argued it's a little too simplistic. However, in the rise of current politics, it is now back in favor as we see how many people in particular in Western liberal societies seem to be willing to follow authoritarian or proto-wannabe authoritarian leaders such as Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. Really interesting stuff. Woo. Now, how does a free and fair republic become fascistic in its nature? One answer is an authoritarian can activate the authoritarian trait, but how do they actually take the levers of power? One way is open revolution. It's the authoritarians just going out there and killing everyone that believes in democracy and establishing their own state. This is really hard to do in well-institutionalized functional democracies, 
because these institutions really do tend to hold. Institutions like the free market, institutions like the free press, institutions like a free military that's uh, loyal to a constitution and not any one person. But the main way that it happens then in more well-established societies is called democratic backsliding. It's slowly eroding in norms and institutions where people don't even realize authoritarianism is happening until it happens. How does Hogwarts come under the thumb of Umbridge? One small, slow step at a time until Dumbledore is gone and she's the headmistress and she's mass torturing her own students in the name of the good of the state. And in this way, we get a very interesting warning, not only for the wizarding world, but a meditation, a deep meditation about our own world and levers of power in places in particular in modern day England and America. Preserve what must be preserved, protect what can be protected, and prune practices that ought to be prohibited. I don't know if I got that exactly right, but uh, that's the that's the democratic backsliding. Can I ask you a question about that latent authoritarian authoritarian trait? I'm just very curious about that. Is is that suggestion that it's a like hereditary genetic trait, or that it's a learned like it's part of your socialization? Yeah, it's a learned behavior. Yeah, so okay, you. Great. Uh, I'm going to do this very simplistically. You're taught that America is the greatest country in the world. All other countries are subservient to it. You're taught that if you disobey a teacher or a cop or a member of the clergy, that you'll get punished and sometimes brutally or corporally, like punished with pain. You are then taught that you have to agree and obey to everyone. You're then taught that there are others out there that are less than you and that you should punish them so you can protect your own privilege and you're taught these things, and these traits are learned, but they're not activated, and then suddenly someone comes around and says, let's turn this authoritarian trait on, and then you have people who, generally speaking, aren't cruel or mean or inhumane, now voting for, supporting, and cheering on cruel and inhumane authoritarians. Yeah, and when you get into those questions of socialization and how uh, how in in the case of many like fascist ideologies or authoritarian governments, that is done through socialization of the youth. And that's done through instilling propaganda early or instilling ideologies really, really early and making it really hard for you to change your mind. So it definitely feels like those are related. Yeah, and consider the lessons of two different wizarding families, the Malfoys and the Weasleys. Perfect example, yeah. And the Malfoys who are taught to conform and obey, who are taught that their privilege and power comes from their blood status and taught that those that have different blood statuses are less than them and should be oppressed if not purged from society altogether versus the Weasleys who are taught to treat everybody with respect and dignity no matter how much money they make, no matter you know what job they have, no matter who their parents were or were not. And we see that these two core beliefs, the ones in mostly Draco and Ron, are so set that they will never waver. And these are both learned patterns of behavior. Now, we liberals, you and I, Laurel, and assuming most of you listening to this show, will look at the Weasleys and say, good, good job, because their son is actually a good person, versus Malfoy, we'd say, bad job, because he's a bad person. But the purpose of political science is to say, these traits were learned when they were young. They're very unlikely to change or evolve. And they're going to determine not only the type of power they're going to support, but also the type of knowledge they're going to go after. So if you are a pure bloodist, you're going to find things to confirm yeah. pure bloodism as correct. Versus if you don't have any blood purity beliefs at all, you're going to find things to confirm that as correct. So people will create epistemologies or systems of knowledge to support the beliefs that were taught to them. But then, of course, this is Harry Potter, and there's no simple answer uh, to how people become the person that they are. The, the the personal and individual choice is always prioritized and is always put uh, at the front and center and always says that if you are socialized one way, you can still make a different choice. And the great example of that in this uh, installment is Sirius Black 
who is a product of a blood purist wizarding family, a pure blood family that is like super proud of one of their sons for becoming a death eater. And that is so obsessed with blood purity that they can't stand like even the portraits of uh, the members of this family can't stand having half-bloods and muggle-borns in their home, they produced Sirius, who could have turned out just like that, could have been a little Draco Malfoy, in fact, they're cousins, but he found a way to become a more progressive, more uh, inclusive, and more equitable person, and he has turned away from that ideology. So there's always going to be that element of choice and individual choice there. Yeah, and, and in Sirius' case, the argument would be that the socialization and lessons of liberalism he learned from the school were more impactful on him than the socialization and lessons learned from home, because he learned from students and friends like James from teachers like Dumbledore and McGonagall that these sort of blood purity things are wrong and those actually had a tremendous impact on him versus people like Bellatrix Lestrange or Draco Malfoy who then sought out to confirm those own biases. And I do think ultimately the Order of the Phoenix does come down heavily that individuals do have the power to choose and should be held accountable for those choices. I mean, when Harry does try to use the Cruciatus curse on Bellatrix, Voldemort almost laughs at him. He's like, you have to mean it, which means you have to really want to torture someone, meaning that you have to make a choice to do things. And choice is one of the big themes of this. Even though they're seeking after a prophecy, the prophecy is largely a MacGuffin. Oh, we can yeah, all, we for can sure. all agree. It, it's meaningless. It's it just will the come thing. Into, it will become more important later in the series, but it is just a MacGuffin in this one. Yeah, and, and no point do we think these characters aren't free to choose. Now, Harry is such an outlier because his socialization from home taught him that he's worthless, taught him that he's meaningless. If anyone would have a reason to think and act and behave cruelly to others, especially going from powerless to powerful, it would be Harry. And yet he is still such a hero. And yet he finds his in it his heart to forgive, to say that he feels sorry for Voldemort. And Harry is the outlier here. He is the glue. It is his leadership that forms Dumbledore's army. And it will be his leadership going forward that's going to stem the tide against the fascistic wave of Voldemort and his authoritarian and totalitarian impulses. Amazing. I want to thank you for all of this groundwork that you've laid about the forms of power, comparing umbrage to fascistic styles of government, um, because I think they're a really interesting setup for, you just brought up Dumbledore's army and Harry's role as a leader within it. And I think uh, it's really interesting to look at uh, the Nazi rise to power, Hitler's rise to power in the 20th century, and the resistance movements that sprang up in response to it as a comparison for what's happening within Dumbledore's army. Uh, because what's really fascinating, I think, about the resistance movements that did spring up is that a lot of them were driven by young people. And youth activism uh, is not a new idea, and it's not going away. If you look anywhere, if you look in any press, in any magazine, uh, you know that youth activism is very, very visible today. If you look at Greta Thunberg, and the youth who are participating in climate strikes all over the world, or you look at the Parkland kids who are standing up for gun control reform, like kids can be real drivers of activism and have been throughout history, but particularly in the 20th century, they were big drivers of social movements and big drivers behind larger social movements like the civil rights movement in America, like the Prague and Arab Spring. Now, earlier you mentioned the strict control that the Nazi party had over the education and socialization of German children. This took place through the censoring of textbooks, firing educators who didn't align with their views, and pumping schools full of propaganda about the superiority of the Aryan race. It was deeply ingrained in education, but also in extracurricular activities. This is coming on the back of a pretty robust uh, German youth movement prior to the Second World War. Youth were becoming more and more activated and participatory in these youth groups. But the Nazi party went so far as to ban 
all of those youth groups except for the ones that they had control over. So you mentioned the Hitler Youth that was socializing young boys to become soldiers in the German army. And then there was also a counterpart, the League of German Girls, because the girls couldn't learn alongside the boys. They had to be indoctrinated to become wives and mothers of Aryan German babies. So these were the only groups that existed for children to become involved in. And they were attractive. Like they went on hiking trips, they went camping, they went skiing, they did all these things that kids want to do. If you've seen Jojo Rabbit, like Jojo loves being in the party because he loves being part of this group that makes him feel special and that he has fun with. But as successful as this socialization strategy was with indoctrinating the youth, there were still underground youth movements that sprung up in response to it. And one of the more well-known ones, which is called the White Rose, uh, actually was founded by people who were formerly part of the Hitler Youth and the League of German Girls. These kids who were supporters of the Reich, who were supporters of the regime. When you're a kid, it's hard to really be a political supporter of anything because you don't necessarily understand the struggles that adults do, but... Uh, Hans and Sophie Scholl, who are the uh, the founders and the leaders of the White Rose movement, were part of that group before they changed their minds. So it's been interesting. We've talked about how difficult it is to change your mind once you've been socialized into one political ideology, but it is possible and it has happened and it has led to really powerful movements in uh, in European history. So Sophie and Hans Scholl uh, another thing that's notable about them is that their father, even though they ended up participating in these youth groups, their father was a very, very vocal critic of Adolf Hitler and of the Nazi party. So it was through their family that they were able to start seeing the truth of what was happening. And that's when they formed uh, this resistance movement with other students from the University of Munich. And the White Rose uh, movement was really just six students who organized passive resistance campaigns, primarily through leaflets denouncing the war and then denouncing the German government and Adolf Hitler. While that may not sound like a huge thing, it was high treason to be printing leaflets saying, do you, do you know what your government is doing? How can you support your government and be a, a moral person? Now, once some of the young men who were part of this movement were able to see the atrocities that were happening within the Warsaw Ghetto, and they learned more about the German persecution of innocent Jews, that they escalated to planning a full-scale student revolt, uh, which would have probably been a really impactful event had it gone off the way that they planned it. Uh, I, I love this moment, though. Uh, so they, they organized a leaflet campaign to distribute to a bunch of students uh, to get them to fully revolt and protest the government. But Sophie Scholl, who was one of these leaders, was holding a stack of leaflets in this great lecture hall, and she stood on the balcony and just had this moment of inspiration where she just threw all the leaflets, and they all fell throughout the lecture hall trying to get her message out to everyone. And it was such an audacious moment that that is why they got arrested. Uh, they were found out because the leaflet campaign was no longer uh, covert. It was this kind of audacious and big and brilliant move, which reminds me a little bit of like Fred and George Weasley and the fireworks. Like you can no longer hold it in when you really need to protest something. Uh, you go for the big move. And unfortunately, uh, that led to the arrest of Sophie, her brother Hans, and another member of the White Rose, Kristoff. Uh, it's a tragic story. They were tried, they were convicted, and hours later they were executed by guillotine. So this was not a successful revolution, but this was a brave and powerful movement led by young people. Dumbledore's army is not a successful revolution. It's a couple of kids in a room that doubles as a broom closet trying to teach each other and trying to resist an oppressive movement that is stifling their education, and that is stifling their ability to protect themselves in the world. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because it makes you think, what does it take to successfully stand up against those who abuse their power and their authority? And how do you rate the success of said action? In many ways, Dumbledore's army um, kind of fails to overthrow Umbridge, 
but it certainly succeeds in teaching many of these students what they need to defend themselves when they're in legitimate peril that happens just later in the movie. You know, Harry says at one point after the army gets uncovered and Dumbledore goes on the run that he has just made things worse. And in the moment when you have lost a battle in your fight against oppression, it may feel like you have made things worse and you may stand up to the third Reich and that might mean your life. But these are still important acts, both symbolically and they're also important literally because others will take up that cause and others will follow where you have um, failed. The story of World War II is one in which liberalism defeats fascism. It is not one in which the fascists win. And similarly, the story of the Order of the Phoenix is one in which our heroes do come out victorious. They are able to stop Voldemort, stop his rise to power. They're able to stop Umbridge. They're able to reinstitute Dumbledore, who should be leading Hogwarts. And they win the information war over whether or not Voldemort is or is not back. All of these are huge wins, um, both tangibly and symbolically. And sometimes it feels like every time you turn a corner in this vast labyrinth of, of human life and you just go from a Voldemort to an Umbridge and back and forth again. And yeah, sometimes that is very, very dark. And sometimes that can feel very debilitating and you may really be struggling to cope, but just understand for every umbrage, there's someone willing to give you a Patronus charm, right? And for every single Voldemort, there's someone there with an Expelliarmus. With every single friend that's willing to spit on you for telling the truth, there's one that's going to stand next to you. And nonconformity is hard. It's really, really hard hard to not conform when someone has power and authority and remember when Hermione giddy dancing when she's like we're breaking the rules something that she has never done because Hermione is in fact a conformist and in this she learns to not conform and these are important lessons as we go through this series and as we go through this journey called being alive now because let's face it, the Umbridges and the Voldemorts of the world, they're not going away. We have to live alongside them. And how do we stand up to them? How do we not lose our heart in the face of them? And Dumbledore's army shows us that just in the way that these German kids and you telling that story tells us this now. Yeah. You know, Sophie Scholl and Hans Scholl are, uh, are national heroes in Germany today. And it, it goes to show that despite the fact that their movement did not produce the results that they were looking for, they are kind of incredible monuments to humanity in the fact that they uh, were part of a system that was, that was supporting oppression and they got out and they chose to redeem themselves through these acts of bravery. And Harry and his friends are the same. They have been part of this Hogwarts system forever and they could easily be complicit. They could easily stay quiet about Umbridge's uh, misuse of power, of her torture of others, but they choose small, quiet acts of resistance. They choose collective acts of resistance together, and sometimes they choose big, bombastic fireworks of resistance. And those are acts of bravery that are going to reverberate throughout the series and that are going to motivate the people who join them throughout the rest of the series. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's all very, very meaningful, despite the fact that, you know, at the end here, again, the the victory is tinged with loss again. We're no longer getting big, happy endings in Harry Potter movies. Uh, Harry is lured into a trap by Lord Voldemort, thinking that he can save his godfather Sirius. And by following that trap, he ends up bringing Sirius to the circumstances of his own death further giving Harry more grief to deal with in the future. Uh, this continues to be a series where we're no longer going to get happy endings. We're going to get bigger and bigger struggles that mount as we win small victories on the way to facing the Great, Great War. Yeah, absolutely. And it's amazing that at the end of Goblet, the battle for 
the wizarding world will commence. And it's going to come down to Harry versus Voldemort. We all knew that. We all have known that. And the first lines of that war happen administratively. They happen within Hogwarts hierarchy. And they happen within the battle of information and knowledge itself. We see our characters fighting for what is and is not true against a fascistic proto-authoritarian in Umbridge who is one of the truly most detestable villains of all time because she's so like villains we have in our life. Yeah. It's easy to hate and fear and all Voldemort. After all, he's one of the great dark lords of dark lords. But Umbridges actually exist out there. Bureaucrats who delight in torture, who delight in seizing power, and who believe that the state is above all the thing that must be preserved and sacrificed for no matter what. Those are the real enemies. And this is such an interesting part of the Harry Potter journey because it's grounded in that. It's grounded in some political science principles, which I just want to say right before we wrap for the end, thank you again, Professor Hickel. I could not have gotten to this episode without you. Amazing. Uh, This has been a really fantastic conversation, and it has been, of course, one of our darker conversations about Harry Potter. So I know we're pushing up on time, but I'd love to end with a little bit of lightness. We could conjure up maybe a little bit of hope. Uh, In this installment, we see uh, a ton of students learning to conjure the Patronus charm for the first time, and we learn what some other people's Patronuses are. We learn that Hermione's is an otter, and that Luna's is a rabbit, and that Ron's is a dog. Uh, so we learn who who everybody's Patronus is. And I would just love to know here at the end, Derek, what is your Patronus? So I've done it on the Pottermore site. And the first time I did it, I got a fire salamander. And this was several, several years ago. And I thought that was really cool. Somehow my Pottermore, it's not Pottermore anymore. They changed it. Uh, my account got, I don't know, nuked, destroyed. So I had to set up a new one and I just recently retook it. And I got a brown bear and I love that. I love that. I can totally see brown bear energy with you. I'm the brown, I'm the brown bear. How about you? Um, when I've taken the Pottermore quiz, I've always gotten cats. Um, and I do think that my Patronus is probably a feline energy, but I'm going to go with a snow leopard, uh, because they are felines, they are cats and they have that kind of energy but they are fiercely independent creatures that usually live in uh, kind of crazy climates uh, in snow and live isolated. And I'm a very independent person, but they can be very loyal to their family as well. So I think they get into my kind of introverted energy that is also very loyal to the ones that I love. All right. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. Don't tell lies. Mm -hmm.